Hey, anybody go to JUCO growing up or now like JUCO? Yeah, okay. If you're new in the Valley, don't know what JUCO is, it's the Junior College uh, Baseball World Series. It's over at Stoker Stadium every year. Usually a good time. I remember one time my dad took me to this game. I think, looking back, it may have been one of the only games or the only game my dad took me to at JUCO. But I, I distinctly remember this game because it went till midnight, after midnight. I, I can't remember how many innings, but it just kept going and going. And it was so close and so tense. In fact, the reason I remember it as a, uh, I don't know, 10-year-old boy is because a massive fight broke out. <laughs> and that's when you're a boy. That's kind of cool, right? You're like, um, But, you know, as the game wore on and as it became clear, like, one team was going to succeed, what happens? The nerves and the anger and the the tension and the other team build up, right? Uh, football season starting here, right? Anybody excited? Nobody? Okay. <laughs> um, if you've watched any football, uh, something you've, you've seen probably is your, your team. Um, I've always seen this dynamic where there's like the dominant team. Maybe they won the championship the year before. They're, you know, the best in the division or whatever. And then you have kind of the underdog team come in, and they're pulling off like a surprise win. And all of a sudden, as the game begins drawing towards a close, you know, in the fourth quarter, um, the, the winning team, the dominant team, realizes like we're losing this thing. And there's this anger and there's this frustration that kicks in. And, man, that's when, like, people play dirty, right? People are throwing throwing fouls to like pause the time clock. There's, well, I think that's basketball, <laughs> but they're doing all kinds of stuff, right? That's when fights break out and guys get angry because the team recognizes the clock is running out and where they have been dominant so long, all of a sudden they're not going to pull this thing off. Now, just tuck that away in your mind because we're going to come back to it here in a minute. But we are in a five-week series in the book of 2 Timothy. After that, a little later September, we're going to get back to our journey through the book of John. But the Apostle Paul is writing to his disciple, to his um, mentee, Timothy, from a jail cell. Um, Paul knows he's approaching the end of his life. Uh, he, he writes this letter to Timothy, and the conversation gets really serious really quick. There's no small talk. Um, Perhaps some of you have had conversations like this with a loved one, maybe by the side of a hospital bed or something, where all of a sudden, like, everything becomes very focused and serious and clear. And Paul tells Timothy, this is what I really want you to get. And so in this letter, Paul is going to describe, and in this chapter that we're looking at, the, the spiritual climate that followers of Jesus are going to have to face as history progresses. The, the spiritual climate, the things Timothy is going to have to deal with. And something Paul actually talks about over and over in his writings, and there's a lot of Paul's writings. Paul's writings make up a good share of the New Testament. But one thing he addresses over and over is the fact that there's a deeper spiritual reality, that, um, that it's not just what meets the eye, that this natural world, this physical world, is not all that there is. There's something deeper going on. In fact, in Ephesians, we're told our battle isn't against, isn't against, wow, I'm having a hard time talking this morning, isn't against flesh and blood, but it's against the powers and the principalities in the heavenly places that there's something going on that, that's, that's in the unseen realm. And it's, 
And its goal is to deceive. Jesus talks about it. It says uh, the enemy's goal is to kill, steal, and destroy. That there is a dark spiritual realm working against the purposes of God and his people in this world. Now, let me just pause for a second and say I, I understand for some of you, you're like, you know, this is kind of hard for me. It's 2022, and we're, we're talking about, like, the devil and a dark spiritual realm. Let me just pause and ask you. Um, there's, there's a lot of bad things that happen in this world, but then there are, there are a lot of truly evil things that happen in this world. Does that just all come from the heart of humanity? Or is there something deeper animating that? Let me just say, when, I've, when it comes to the existence of the dark spiritual realm, I, I've experienced some things, and then I've heard many stories from other people that I, that I really trust. Um, I remember being in Thailand a number of years ago and traveling with another pastor and with our um, good missionary friends, the wards, and we went up to visit this, this little village and this church that we'd built, and we were doing some ministry and worship in this church in the evening, and this lady, um, this little Thai lady starts up manifesting a demon. And if you've experienced that, you know what it is, a little freaky, not something to be afraid of as a Christian, but in the presence of God, in the presence of praise and worship, like we just talked about in that last song, um, th this whatever, spiritual, this demonic force starts to manifest and, and show itself in her. And so we were praying over her um, a couple days later. Um, the other pastor that was on this trip wakes up in the middle of the night and he tells us about it the next morning and he woke up in the middle of the night. It was like two hands just pushing him down onto his bed as hard as he could, couldn't breathe. And he just managed to get the words out, Jesus, boom, whatever that was, gone. It's interesting. Um, actually, right after I told that story last night, another um, pastor friend of mine that uh, used to be a pastor came up to me and he's like, man, I had the same thing happen. I woke up one night in my college dorm with that exact thing, like two hands pressing down on my chest. God, I, I just managed to say in Jesus' name, boom, gone. But the cool thing about his story was at the very exact same moment, his college roommate woke up and was praying for him, like just felt, I got to pray for him. <laughs> Crazy, huh? I've, I, I get to keep going and, and, and tell you more stories like that. I mean, I know somebody here locally, uh, um, that had a house, was a property manager, and there's this house, like, and there was something in this house, just crazy stuff going on, connected to, like, Ouija boards and, and um, just occultic kind of activity. And a pastor, they brought the pastor over after, you know, um, the, uh, <laughs> some other missionaries from a different religion, and, uh, and an exorcist failed. This local pastor from Fruta came out, and he ended up like saying, well, guys, you guys are played on the wrong team. It's kind of like a football team. You know, you, you want to be on Jesus' team. And he led these guys to Jesus and then said, as far as this thing going on in the house, I don't really know. Um, but let's, why don't you just like play worship music and, and scripture? And uh, it'll either get worse because it'll get really mad or <laughs> it'll leave. Gone. These guys were ready to cancel or at least trying to demand their down pay, their deposit back. And they're like, they stayed. And so let me just say, like, some of you are like already in your heads, like trying to figure out, well, I can think of all kinds of explanations for that. Really? Let me ask, like, what's going on there? 
And I just tell you personally, I've seen enough that I am convinced there's more going on than just the natural physical world that we encounter. In fact, Jesus continuously acknowledges this and demonstrates this through the gospels, doesn't he? In fact, the ones who, who were the ones that identified Jesus before, that knew Jesus was the son of the most high God before anyone else knew that information? The demons. They were the ones that always freaked out, and he's, he has full authority. People were amazed that he had authority over them. And so Jesus demonstrates this, and Jesus decisively at the cross wins this victory over the evil and Satan and hell and the grave. And what, like, if you're in church here and going like, well, why are we talking about this weird stuff to start off the message? Let me just say, here's why. I, I think most people, most followers of Jesus, go through life oblivious to the fact that they're in a battle. That there truly is a spiritual battle going on. If, uh, it, it, and when that happens, actually, I think so many people end up just sort of getting beat up by the enemy. And think, they just think, like, man, this, this stuff's happening. And, and they don't recognize that actually, as they're being effective for Jesus, they're under attack. Now, the other side of that, I think, for many Christians, is they're just sitting on the sidelines, kind of like at the Juco game, you know, kicking back the peanuts and, and uh, you know, ordering hot dogs and, and sort of watching the show. And they're not in the game. And the thing for them is actually... Um, when they're complacent, when it comes to the strategy of the enemy, if the enemy can keep you distracted, complacent, comfortable in life, self-absorbed, he can take you out of the game without even breaking the sweat. He can make you ineffective for the kingdom of God. If you're no threat, you may not be experiencing any opposition. And so today, as we look in this chapter, Paul's going to tell us that we're going to face some things when it comes to both opposition from humans and, and spiritual powers, and he's going to help us know how we can guard against being taken out. And so if you have your Bibles, you can start turning on over to 2 Cha- Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to go through the whole chapter today. It's a fairly short chapter, but I'm going to do something a little bit different. Here at Life Community, we have a, uh, a value. We have a statement that really informs a lot of what we do, and that's this, biblically serious, responsive to the Holy Spirit. We, we have the goal. We always want to be, we are very serious about the scriptures. You know that if you've been coming for any length of time, that we take the Bible seriously. And we also want to live a life constantly responsive to the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit um, whispers in our ear, and if you that sounds weird or you're not a Christian yet, um, for the, the, the Spirit leads us in, in ways that sometimes you just know. Uh, it's called the still small voice of God, that throughout the day we would be responsive when he says, hey, I want you to call so-and-so or reach out. Many of you have done that. You felt that prompting and you picked up the phone or you sent a text and you found out there was something big going on in that moment. Or like um, my friend's roommate, you were woken up in the middle of the night with a, like, pray for so-and-so. My dad had a dramatic like story around that. And, and when that happens, um, you obeyed, you, you responded to the Spirit, and then you found out somehow that God used you in that, or you were able to um, reach out to someone in the midst of the thing they were going through. Sometimes that looks like the Holy Spirit responsive teaches you something through the Scriptures because the Holy Spirit illuminates the Scriptures to us. Sometimes that means when he says pray for somebody, you pray for him and you see God come through in a powerful, dramatic way and bring healing or freedom to someone. 
So we're biblically serious. We're responsive to the Holy Spirit. So I want to start with the, actually the last two verses of this chapter and talk for just a little bit about why we have this value and why we hold this value so dear. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says this, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So you see a couple things in here. First thing is this idea that Scripture is God-breathed. Now, there's so many amazing things about the Scripture. 66 books in the Bible that were written over 1,500 years by different authors that tell a cohesive story pointing to Jesus. In fact, Jesus, right after his resurrection, one of the things he did is take a couple of his disciples and like walk them through all the Old Testament Scriptures and show them how they all pointed to him how the whole story was pointing to him all along. Um, as, as scholars have studied these, as I've studied these, um, and you begin to study the texts and the Gospels and um, some of the works of Paul and some of these things, what we find is there's more, um, it's a field of, of study called textual criticism. There's more evidence for scriptures than almost any ancient writings. It's really stunning. And, and I've become convinced, man, you can trust the reliability of the scriptures. I don't have a lot of time to get into this today, but let me just say, if you're struggling with that, can I trust the Bible? How do we know the Bible like, is true? Or how do we know the scriptures are trustworthy? Um, reach out to us on our website. Man, one of our pastors or myself would love to walk you through some of that stuff if you're struggling with that. But it's not just that it's reliable. Christians for, for a couple thousand years have, have believed, as the scriptures claim about itself, that there's something living and active. In fact, it says the word of God is alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, that it's effective, that there's something living and active about the scriptures. And why is that? Well, Paul says because the scripture is God-breathed. Now, some of your translations might say inspired. Which is, which is a good word too, but a little confusing sometimes in our culture because we use that word to mean all sorts of things, right? You watched a, like a, a fun documentary about, um, I don't know, uh, seals and you were inspired. Um, I, you know, you watched a, a, a play and it was so inspiring. Or you listened to a Jocko Willock podcast and you were inspired to get like pain is weakness leaving the body and you went for a big workout and you're sore, you can walk for a week. So we use this word in all kinds of ways, don't we? Inspired. It's inspired because it's accurate, but it doesn't actually capture the heart of, of what the Greek is saying here, which is, no, God breathed the scriptures. There's something like God brought this to life. Not like, and it wasn't through like authors that just turned into robots and like, you know, like robotically recorded but he used the voice and the style of the individual author. You see this in the writings of, of Paul and John and Peter, eyewitnesses of the resurrection, each in their own style. And, he, and to give us exactly what we needed for what? For what? For teaching, obviously, that's what we do every week, right? But it, it goes further than that for rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. That's a combination of goodness and justice, right relationship with God, and for the fact that you and I, as a servant of God, may be equipped, equipped to get to the stuff that God's called us to do. 
We have another saying around here. It's not just pastors that the job of, of the people that are like the staff of the church is to equip the rest of you to get to the things that God has for you to get to in this world. Equipping, which is why we take scripture so seriously around here. And here's why I think this is an important thing to, to think through, this idea and understanding that this is God-breathed. is because if you don't understand this, if you just think it's inspirational, kind of like, you know, I've got a scripture on a coffee cup and it makes me feel good every morning, um, inspires me. If you just think of that, but don't understand that Jesus, in fact, and the apostles are claiming a whole different thing. Like, no, this, these are actually God's instructions. These, this is God's word to us to tell us how the world works so that we can align our lives with what reality actually is because he's the creator of it all. If you don't have that framework in your heart and your mind, you're going to pick and choose what you like. And when you bump up and you're like, I want to go this way in life, and Scripture says, don't go that way, you're going to go, well, yeah, I'll pick this other inspiring side and kind of ignore that one. Not really that important. That doesn't really inspire me. I want to go do this. Or when we bump up against something in culture where culture says, you can't, that, that's so antiquated, you know, and it's like, um, well, we'll just sort of let that go. That's not so popular in culture today. And we pick and we choose. And consequently, I think many people end up that the, what happens is if you're living your life contrary to the way the creator of the universe designed it to be lived, you're not going to experience joy, fulfillment, peace. You can try to oppose the law of gravity. It just doesn't work very well, right? Some of you experienced that. So, Biblically serious, responsive to the Holy Spirit. Now let's flash back to verse 1 and work through this. Paul, speaking to Timothy, he's just told him about some false teachers and teachers that deny the reality of the resurrection at the return of Jesus, that sort of just spiritualize the whole thing. Oh, it's just a spiritual, it's inspirational, it's nice, but it's not really, really, that's not really, really going to happen. And because of that, the faith of many were shipwrecked with faith of many like, well, what's it all? What's the point anymore? So Tim, Paul says this to Timothy, verse one, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. There will be terrible times in the last days, he says. Take my word for it. There's going to be hard times. The Greek can literally mean violent, fierce, hard to deal with. There's going to be hard times in the last days. You see this, this idea of the last days, and, and uh, we often just think of this in the, you know, maybe the reference of like the very end of time right before Jesus comes back. But actually, as you read through scriptures, um, Peter, in his very first sermon in Acts chapter 2, powerful sermon, gets up. And he's talking about like what the prophet Joel prophesied hundreds of years before. And he says, in the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. And it's happening right now. This is it. This is, this is what he prophesied. He says later, and then he goes on to say, and this had to happen, Joel said, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, the final, the final day, the day when God will wrap it all up, when Jesus returns. Hebrews tells us this, in these last days, he has spoken to us. God has spoken to us through his son. 
And so, really, if you want to understand what, what this is talking about, what Paul's talking about, he is talking about this final period in time of the history of God's interaction, redemption of his people before Jesus comes back, that culminates at the time when Jesus does come back. So that's the period we live in. And Paul, they, they, they're like, we're in the last days. This last time, as, as the message of the gospel goes out throughout the whole world, as people trust Jesus, follow him, are filled with his Holy Spirit, empowered by him. That's the day. Now, how close are we to the last of the last days? I don't know. But one thing I do know, we're closer than we've ever been. It's not rocket science, Right? And let me just tell you, I'm working on, um, I'm working on a series that deals with some of the end times prophecy stuff. I'm just not ready to share it yet, but I'm working on it. Okay, um, if he comes in the meantime, it'll be all good. I probably got half of it wrong anyway. So, because <laughs> let me tell you, I'm seeing, I'm seeing indicators and signs more, um, some amazing things regarding 1948, the the restoration of Israel, like pieces that we've never had before in history, and it's pretty exciting time to be alive. But all that to say, I don't know. I don't know. It could be tomorrow. It could be 100 years. I don't know. But we do know we're called to live differently, a life that's set apart, that's holy. God says, be holy for I am holy. And that's the way we're called to live in this period of time that he's placed us in history right now so that other people can be drawn to him, so that just like his people back in Exodus were called to be different, to be set apart. That's what the word holy means, so that others could say, hey, you're a light. What's different about you? We have the one true God as our God, and he brings us life in abundance. That's how we're called to live. But Paul says, hey, mark this. Don't think that means it's going to always be easy. No, in fact, in these last days, there's going to be terrible times. And here, why is that? Remember the illustration we started out with, the, basketball, or the football game, right? The dominant team was, they've always, they've been dominating the last few years, and now they're down, and it's the fourth quarter. They've, everybody knows that the game's over, but they're trying by some miracle to get it back, throwing Hail Marys, fouling, anger. And this is why I think Paul says there's going to be terrible times in the last days because the enemy knows he was defeated at the cross. That's what scripture says. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. The enemy knows he's been defeated and yet he is angry. He's running out of time and he's going to try to take as many people out as he can. That's why Paul calls this time the present evil age. He tells us to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. See, we live in this interval between the time of the defeat, decisive defeat of evil on the cross and the final defeat when Jesus returns. The victory's been won, but we're in mop-up operations, right? Lots of illustrations uh, tie into World War II. Um, don't have time. Let's move on. But the whole point is the, he, he gets more desperate the closer he gets, which is why believers who are effective for living for, for Jesus can expect to face some opposition in their life, which is also why he's ramping up his deception and his influence in people's lives. Verse 2. He's going to describe some of this, the terrible times now, and he's going to tie back into some of these um, religious leaders that were in the church deceiving people that were twisting doctrine, saying, hey, 
let's just spiritualize this all and feel inspired and good. And, um, but the resurrection isn't really going to happen. The reality of Jesus' return, his death, resurrection, and what that means for us. Yeah. And because of that, people's faith was damaged. They said this, people will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money. Uh, you know, when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, uh, he is, it's implied that we love ourselves. In fact, Paul says, what? Husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church? Like what person hates their own body and doesn't take care of it? So there's this implication. And I don't know, some people have issues and, and, and stuff, but, but the point isn't, you got to work really hard to love yourself more and more and more and more. That's the message that culture wants to tell you. What, what he's saying is actually selfishness comes natural. And putting yourself above everyone else comes really natural to humanity. And we're going to see more and more of this as history progresses. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. You know, money's just a tool. It can be used for good. It can be used for evil. But Paul also says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So our relationship with our stuff really matters. So he says they'll be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Fifth commandment, honor your mother and father, not these folks, right? Ungrateful, unholy, not set apart, without love slanderous. Um, when it says without love, it's interesting because the Greek, like when you read that, it's really the ideas without like the natural affection you expect like a mother to have for a child. Like that's the most, I mean, just like mama bear, right? You don't want to encounter a mama bear with your cub out in the woods. It's natural, and Paul's saying there's something unnatural and twisted that even that natural, people that should have this great love for their kids and stuff, you're not going to see that in some of these people. Unforgiving, uh, wait, slanderous, without self-control. Slanderous is like talking maliciously about others without self-control. He's not just talking about like, the extra donut here, that's not really the point, you know? He's talking more about the big moral issues of life in a list like this. Brutal, the idea of betrayal. Rash, out of control. Like out of control living. Conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness. Oh, I'm spiritual. I, I go to church sometimes. I grew up, pick your, pick your denomination, having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with such people. That's quite a list, isn't it? And now there's two things you can do as you, as you read a list like this, and there's lots of other lists like this that Paul lists in his writings. There's several of them. You, you can look at this and go, wow, wow. I think we're in the last days. And I think that's true. And actually what's interesting is you go back and you look at ancient Rome. Uh, man, ancient Rome was like this. And man, especially the more culture abandons God, we move more and more towards this as a culture. This list of traits. 
It's true. The gravity of our current age will try to pull you away from living a life that honors God. But before we just, like, judge culture, it's also very important to look into our own hearts, isn't it? Because as you look at some of these things, you're like, wow, I see, I see that creeping up in my heart. I see that tendency creeping up in my heart, man. There's this, man, there's this, like, I just constantly struggle with this thing, and it feels like I'm, like, something unnatural almost tempting me in this thing. Like, wow. And so before we get too judgy, it's always good to look and go, God, God, is there is the roots of some of this in my heart, and how can I deal with that, right? And the other side of this is when you look at a list like this of sort of evil traits in the Bible, especially some of other Paul's lists and stuff, um, sometimes that fly in the face of so many things culture says, like, no, you do you, you do your truth. And as you look at some of these lists, here's what you need to realize. These lists aren't just arbitrary. God isn't just coming up with a bunch of stuff to ruin your fun. When we live contrary to the way that the designer of the universe created us to live, not only does it hurt us, it hurts everybody around us. And that's the point. That is actually how the enemy wants to deceive you. The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy and when you live into this stuff, not only do you not experience joy and peace the way God intended you to live, you're going to hurt everybody else around you. They have an appearance of godliness, and some of these people are religious. Some of these people would, you know, know some stuff. Whether that's just sort of, I'm spiritual. Or whether it's, I, I grew up in this, not, yeah, I grew up whatever. And yet they deny the power. They're not listening to the Holy Spirit. They're not being led by the Holy Spirit. They're not living responsibly to the Holy Spirit. Maybe they can quote some of the Bible, but they're not actually allowing their lives to be transformed by the Holy Spirit, because that's part of the work of the Holy Spirit, too, as he fills us, is to change us and transform us and to make us more into the image of Christ. He says, watch out for this. In fact, he says, I have nothing to do with such people. You know, um, there's a time to reach people. I mean, as a follower of Jesus, that's your primary mission, to become a, a closer follower of Jesus yourself, to, to be discipled yourself, and then to disciple other people, to help other people become followers of Jesus. So there's a time to reach people. Paul says, don't disassociate from those people in the world. But man, you got to be really careful with, with who you're allowing to influence you. And really honest, especially young people in the room. Listen up. If you're a young person in the room, you like to tell yourself you're going to influence other people, but so many times it goes exactly the other way. I've seen this over and over again. Um, Winston and I were talking about this, and he said, yeah, I joined the football team to win people to Jesus, but what ended up happening, they just sucked me down. <laughs> and, and for so many, especially as your character's developing, as you're younger, you got to be so careful about the influences you allow in your life because your friends will make more difference than anything else on the quality and the trajectory of your life. And there are some friends I am so grateful that they moved away when I, when I was in my early teen years because it wasn't headed in a good direction. 
You gotta be so careful. Girls, like, I'm just gonna say, I've, I've observed, you know, I'm gonna put it in a plug for nice guys here because I've observed you, you sometimes like the bad boys. Let me say, find a guy that loves God because you think I can change him. I mean, he's really cute. I'll bring it. He'll come to church with me. You think you're going to change him, but I've seen over and over and over again, it ends in heartache. Pick a guy that loves God, that honors God with his life. Don't just ignore like, well, yeah, he's really angry. Yeah, he's really self-absorbed. But he's got a great job. Find a guy that loves God and honors him with his life. Because God called you to live a life that's set apart, that's holy for him. You have a purpose in life to live your life for him, not just to live your life for yourself. And if the enemy can take you out of the game, he will. And you will lose your effectiveness living for Jesus. And you will have years or decades of regret. So Paul goes on, and he's, now he, he gets a little more detailed on the specific problem that's happening with some of these false teachers. He goes on and says, They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, in, in Ephesus, um, Paul's not making a category statement here, but in Ephesus, there's been a, an issue um, with basically a goddess kind of cult where a lot of women were getting sucked into it and then maybe coming out of it and, and coming to Jesus, but there's still a lot of like vestiges of that left over trying to pull them back in. And Paul says, these guys are manipulating these women. Hey, can we do, can we do this study in your house? I had a... Uh, my wife had a good friend who got connected with this, this guy who got into some really false theology about like universalism and stuff and ended up like walking away from her faith, become an atheist. Because all of a sudden the whole thing doesn't matter anymore, right? Verse 8, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers opposed the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Um, this is cool. These two names only. This is the only time they appear in, in the whole Bible. And uh, we, don't, we don't actually know who they are from, from the, the scriptures. Well, we do. We know who they are from Jewish tradition, some of the other writings outside of the Bible. And th these were the names of the magicians and the sorcerers who challenged Moses as he confronted Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And God was, you know, sending these plagues and these signs early on. And so, you know, he threw down his staff and they're like, we can do that. And they access some kind of power and they throw down their staff and it turns into a snake. Of course, there's gets eaten up, right? Because uh, it shows who's got the power, really. And then uh, Moses, like, you know, they pour water down. It turns into blood. They're like, we can do that. And so they do that. And then there's like Moses, um, you know, God sends a plague of frogs. And they're like, we can, we, can, we can create some frogs. And somehow they summon up some frogs. And what you understand as you go back and read about these guys is they're not just like doing card tricks here. They actually, there is actually a demonic realm in play here. 
There's spiritual forces that have power, but they're not powerful like the all-powerful God most high. And so what's interesting about this, and I think so telling, when you look at these two guys, is all they can do is make things worse. All they can, frogs, a plague, we can do more of that. We can make it worse. Snakes, sure, you can have some more snakes. Blood, we'll make more blood. But they couldn't get rid of any of it. In order to bring life, it had to be the God of the universe, the all-powerful God, and Moses came in and prayed, and those plagues were removed. If you remember the beginning of Exodus. And this is this is the unseen, dark, supernatural realm. There is power there, but not power like exists in Jesus. The enemy is only there to steal, kill, and destroy. And why I think this is so important is I think so many people sort of dabble in some stuff. I remember one time, like, my mom's family was messing around with the Ouija board. This is before I was born. And um, they, like, had just changed the date of their wedding. And... Um, they just were thinking this was all just a joke. And then they like asked this thing, well, when are uh, my parents getting married? This was uh, my, my aunt. And it said the date and then it like wrote it out. And then like a few minutes later, they got a phone call or an hour later. Hey, we changed our wedding date to that date. And my aunt was like, well, we're getting rid of this thing. It's not something to mess around with. Occultic things. And here's what I think families, you got to be really careful about what you're allowing in your home. You gotta like. You gotta let your kids know about the reality of a spiritual realm because right now, um, I don't care if it's Stranger Things or or um, Netflix or whatever. There's a lot of spiritual stuff floating around there, and I'm saying you need to use discernment about what you allow and at what ages you allow your kids because a lot of it when you when you let this stuff in really early, they can't they can't discern between the real and the counterfeit. And so we've got, I'm making my kid read This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti. Anybody remember that book? Yeah, it's a work of fiction. If you haven't read it, you should read it because I think actually God gave him some really um, cool spiritual eyes about what's actually going on in the spiritual realm. Um, good one to have your, your kids read before they, uh, you know, watch Stranger Things. <laughs> you got to be cautious. Because there is, there is power in the spiritual realm, but it's not the power of the Most High God. And it only has the power to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So, Paul goes on. And he's going to say, hey, you're going to know these teachers by their, through, by their fruit. And then he, he contrasts it with the example from his own life. There's these guys, and all they're bringing is pain, and counterfeit and deceit. Instead, look at my example, Timothy. Verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance. This is like the opposite list of the others, right? Persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? Oh, like getting stoned, I mean, with rocks. I got to clarify that. I was in Colorado now. Rocks, like left for dead, pelted with rocks and left for dead. The persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Now, Paul is not boasting here. He's setting an example. He said, man, you saw the way I followed God. You saw the way I didn't give up. You saw the way I got back off the ground after they left me for dead and didn't abandon 
Jesus and say, well, I put it in my service. I kept going for him. You saw the way I love people. We're patient with people. And you were with me. You experienced that. And here's what you need to know, especially if you're a parent. Listen up. Your kids will emulate what you do, not what you say. You know this because you see a little bit of your parents in you, right? You do things, you're like, oh, that was really corny. Oh, that was just like my dad. And then you're in your 40s, you're like, I don't care. I guess I'm just dad joke now, right? I guess I'm corny. But you see that, right? We know this. But the same thing's true when it comes to behavior. You can tell your kid one thing, but if you're not doing what you say, um, they're probably going to do what you do. Reggie Joyner, who worked with youth for years and years, an author, he says this, you duplicate what you are, not what you say, not what you think, but what you are. Great thing to ask. What am I duplicating? What example am I setting? He says, you see me. You saw the persecutions I endured, my perseverance. And yet the Lord rescued me. God brought me through. He recognizes. It wasn't just me gritting my teeth, listening to Jocko podcasts, like, come on. No, it was God who got me through. It was the power of God that brought me through this. He got me through. It was his power. It was the Holy Spirit working in my life. And then he goes on, and and I love this verse. I think some of you should put it on a coffee cup, but I don't think any of you will. I've never seen this on a coffee cup. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Anybody got that on a coffee cup? Just so inspired. See, Paul's bringing a reality here. Like you, if you're gonna, if you want to live a godly life, actually live a life that honors God and is effective for God, and not just, you know, like everybody else in the culture, but you are gonna live a life that honors God, you're gonna face some opposition. The Greek here, um, the heart behind it, it is it's not like an individual, every individual, but it's understanding that this is the typical experience of those who want to live a godly life. Some of you maybe come up with an example. Well, I know so-and-so. They never really faced opposition. Bet they did spiritually. But he's saying the normal experience. In fact, Jesus, I mean, Peter says, hey, don't be surprised at the fiery trial you're enduring. Jesus, when he gathers up his disciples just hours before his death, he says, hey, I've got some news, and I'm telling you this because I don't want you, literally the Greek word is to be scandalized, like, what is happening to me? He says, in this life, you will face trials. You will face persecution, hardship. But take heart. I've overcome the world. And what? And I'm going to go away and prepare a place for you. If I go away, surely I will come again for you. You have a promise from him. But the promise isn't that everything's going to be easy, that it's going to be smooth sailing, that life is going to be all just blessed. And when you hear blessed, you will be blessed. But blessed doesn't always mean easy. It doesn't mean that you won't face opposition both from a spiritual unseen enemy and from people who are influenced by him, who do not love or serve the God that you do. Don't be surprised. See, sometimes this is from the spiritual realm, but I, I think it's a, it's a mistake. People, when it comes to the spiritual realm, usually lean one way or the other. They usually like everything's like, Ooh, like there's demons behind every single bush and every headache's like, I rebuke you. Um, 
Sometimes it's just a headache, okay? <laughs> um, but the other side is this basically being oblivious that there is a spiritual realm and there's, there's an enemy. And then you just keep, keep getting beat up and beat up. You don't understand. Like, you're like, what am I doing wrong? No, actually, you're being effective. And there's an enemy who's against you. You need people praying for you. You need to be aware. Wake up. You're asleep. The other side is if you just go with the flow of culture, you may not be experiencing much opposition. If you're not lining your life with Scripture, you may not face much opposition. Do you want to be effective for Jesus? Do you want to live a godly life? Do you want to live a life that will set you on a course when you're done to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant? Expect some hardship. While evildoers, verse 13, and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Yep, you're going to have people that oppose you, people that are deceptive, which is why, what? How do, you, how do you avoid this? How do you stay strong? Here's how. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He says, continue in what you've learned and you've become convinced of. Timothy, you've put in some hard work. You don't just sort of believe this. Remember, he starts out chapter one. You have a sincere faith that first lived in your mother and your grandmother. Parents, go back. If you missed the first talk, I just asked, go back and listen to the first talk of this series. Because it's so vital that you be discipling your kids and pouring into them. Helping them develop a real relationship with God that's theirs. And Paul says, hey, you've become convinced of this. You've done the hard work. You've leaned into God. You, you know the scriptures. You've known them. And you continue in that. You continue in that. And that's how you avoid deception. Man, life is hard enough without even like just the spiritual oppression kind of component just life in a fallen world is hard enough. There's things you get all that broadside you all the time. Health things, finance things. Things that are really hard to carry. Some of you, you you're carrying things like that right now. And it's not, it's not like a specific spiritual thing. It's just, it's life in a broken, fallen world before Jesus comes back. Continue in what you've learned. Don't give up. It's easy to start. It's hard to finish. It's easy to lose heart. It's easy to lose faith. Continue in what you've learned and become convinced of. Do the hard work to be convinced of it. The difference between maturity in faith and, and immaturity is when you fall down, when you stumble, when you sin, you get up and run towards the Father. When you face hardship, you don't run away. You ask, God, I don't understand what's going on here. Would you stand? You know, comfort in your life will blind you to the battle that you're in. The enemy would love you to fall asleep. Some of you, that's the place you're in.
Others, you've been kind of clueless to the fact that you are in a battle. And God is inviting you to wake up, to pray up, to get some people around you, to be aware you do have an enemy. Some of you, he's just saying, get in the game. For some of you, it's this thing I continue. I know it's rough right now. Continue in the things you know and have become convinced of. For some, it's, man, you haven't been in Scripture. You need to get back into Scripture so that you understand, so that you're not deceived, so you're encouraged, so that you're equipped for what he wants to do through you in your life. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for my friends. And Lord, I just want to ask that, um, Lord, you know each individual situation right now. And for those that are just so discouraged, Lord, um, would you sustain them? Would you support them? For those that have kind of been on the sidelines and like, yeah, it's been fairly smooth sailing, would you let them engage and actually be fruitful for your kingdom that they would, they would get in the game? Lord, for some maybe are experiencing significant um, opposition from the enemy right now. Would you let them get some people around them who can help support them in prayer? Lord, for that one that has not crossed that line of faith yet, those folks in the room online, that today would be the day that they put their faith and trust in you and live their lives for you, Lord. And that wisdom would lead them to follow you and give their lives to you, Lord. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.